how much detail a lot of times a person will pump for details who what when where why how much how often what time what day yeah i find that 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 too much detail only feeds the monster so for the record nobody is going to be feeding any monsters today but we are going to get honest with each other and well, we'll also help you gain clarity about how significant your problem is or isn't. And hey, I'm going to tell you the end of that Stephen Curtis Chapman story from last time. Hey there. Welcome to the Happily Even After podcast, where you'll hear a story of a husband and wife who did not ride off into the sunset, but found themselves fighting a man's fierce battle with lust and pornography. Bob and Dan Gresh are raw, real, and honest. Their guests are wise experts in the work of marriage recovery. Some have degrees in therapy or psychology. If you have put up your walls and keep yourself isolated behind your walls, there's not much difference between that and divorce because it's living in self-protection. Others have learned their lessons on the hot pavement of life. I woke up Sunday morning and I think there were some things going on in my mind that it was either going to be the end of our life together or I was going to confess. They'll help you explore seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Oh, and by the way, you can live happily even after. Bob Gresh. Hey, welcome back to our Redemption Story podcast, and thanks for coming back. It makes us feel good. Yeah, welcome back to our living room. Uh, we do know that it may not have been easy to get back for a second listen, because if you're like us, you might have thought about when and where to listen or whether or not to listen at all. So go ahead and give yourself an old high five. How do we know it's not easy to be here? Because we've been there. I think some of our worst fights of all time were after counseling sessions. It seemed like just open us up and then the 50 minutes would be up and we'd leave and have a very awkward car ride home. It was really difficult and I did not like it at all. No high fives. <laughs> no, no, there was no anything in that car except tension. Yeah, but here's the deal. If you press into this together, you are gonna have some big wins to celebrate with each other. Um, here's the deal. We're gonna soak you in truth and we can make a pretty bold promise to you. If you abide in that truth from God's word and the source of truth himself, Jesus, you're going to start to experience freedom. In fact, why don't we get today started with one of our favorite freedom stories from our redemption trail. And we gave it a very humble, simple title, The Glorious Unfolding. <laughs> yeah. Well, we didn't come up with that title. So here's the deal. Let me tell you how one of my worst days in our healing became one of my favorites. So this was back when Bob was at that first recovery clinic, and I was feeling excluded from his treatment. I was driving to the Nashville International Airport after visiting with some friends for counsel, and that's when I heard a song for the first time. It was Glorious Unfolding by Stephen Curtis Chapman. And the lyrics invite you to take a rest from the fight. Oh, how I wanted to. And I remember hearing Stephen sing, I know this is not anything like you thought the story of your life was going to be. It was like he had written that song for me on that day. And then we got to the lyrics that told me to hold on to every promise God has made to us. That's when I reached over and snapped the radio off. I was a little mad at God. I mean, could I trust his promises? I asked him to prove it. Audacious, I know. I drove the rest of the way to the airport with tears brimming my eyes. And when I got there, I returned my rental car and made my way to the check-in counter. Welcome to Music City and Nashville International Airport. This is Lori Andrew and Charlie Chase. The Nashville Airport's one great big country music hug, and I was not in the mood. In fact, I was literally a sobbing, snotty mess. More of a wreck than when Bob had first disclosed things to me. The agent at the counter who was actively helping a gentleman saw me fumbling and could see I was unstable. She looked over that man's shoulder and said something like, I'll be with you in a moment. Hang in there. And the man she was serving turned to look at me. It was Stephen Curtis Chapman. I kid you not. 
A new wave of tears engulfed me, but now they were hopeful. Then Stephen, whose wife Mary Beth was standing nearby, walked over to me, and I don't remember anything he said to me, though I do know it was gentle. If I remember correctly, he took my paperwork and punched my confirmation number in. LZHCP4, United Flight 3400, departing Nashville at 1.31 p.m. on September 29th. (laughs) Yeah, I thought, I can. I can trust his promises. There's so much of the story that's still yet to unfold. And this is going to be a glorious unfolding. Just you wait and see, and you will be amazed. You've just got to believe the story is so far from over. So hold on to every promise God has made. Dana's glorious unfolding. I talked with her and and I, I felt hope was really renewed in my bride. She sounded like herself for the first time in a long time. She was full of faith and confidence in God's promises. It, it was good. She'd had an encounter with our God and it seemed unbelievable, but that's just like God. He's, he's near to the brokenhearted. I asked Dana to send me the lyrics to that song so I could share them with the other guys in treatment with me. And we weren't allowed to listen to our own music. I told the guys what God had done for my wife, and they were amazed. It was a, a little miracle night at the round table we had. They were guys who were wishing their story didn't look the way it did. There's no question about it. And for a moment, I think they really believed, wanted to believe that God could be part of their plan too. Mm. It's a night we love to remember, a glimmer of God's grace in the darkness. And you're going to have moments like that, too, if you press into trusting God. And that's what we're going to ask you to start to do today. We're going to dive into truth number two. Honest confession is the beginning of healing. And while it's not going to feel like it, today's topic is really about trusting God and His promises. Let's start with this. Why is honest confession so important? Here's Debbie Laser. It's about living in truth. And one of the things that I think is hardest for a wife, frankly, is not only the behaviors that she maybe has learned about, but more importantly, that there's been lying and covering up. Debbie's an older, put-together woman with grayish blonde bangs and a sassy bob. Her smile is winsome. She looks like the girl next door, but just a few years older. She wishes her husband, Mark, had disclosed his sin to her sooner. Mark, who struggled with pornography, began when he was 11 years old, escalated. He confessed his sin to a pastoral counselor who told him not to mention it to Deb. And then his advisor told him simply, don't ever do it again. Unfortunately, the pastor's unhelpful advice robbed Mark of the opportunity to live in truth with Debbie and for both of them to get help. It got in the way of Mark going after the root cause of his behaviors. Of course, Mark's addiction got worse much worse, for 10 more years. And during that time, Debbie just felt crazy. When we don't live with truth, uh, what I know is it can tend to start leading us to feel crazy in Mm. our life. And for a wife who hasn't known the truth, not only about sexual acting out, but at that point, she may not know about whatever else has not been truthful in her life. Mm. And I know this was true for me. You start questioning everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you know there hasn't been truth-telling, you don't even know if when you went on the vacation, you really wanted to go on the vacation or the Mm -hmm. gift you bought was really, you know, a meaningful gift. Or I mean, everything becomes questionable. And that can be extremely painful, which is why I think this addiction, more so than any others, is one of the more difficult ones for a wife to move through. Okay, let's, let's land on the word addiction for just a sec. I know it's a hard one to digest for those of us who love our Bibles and believe a definition of sin is an important part of the redemption process. And I'm in that camp. But addiction adequately describes the experience, the harrowing experience so many of us have had with this kind of sin. And I want to give you a very simple definition of addiction. First, it's compulsive. You compulsively act out compulsively look at pornography, whatever you're acting out is. Compulsive 
it has consequences, negative consequences when you act out. And three, the third C is you lose control of your ability to stop acting out. Three C's, compulsive, consequence, and control. These are the signs of addiction, and it is sin, but it's also a stronghold of sin. Here's Dr. Mark Laser, Debbie's husband. We're fearfully and wonderfully made. Whatever's in our brains, God has put there. And uh, I don't think looking at something as an addiction or a neurochemical problem absolves us of the responsibility to get well. Mark heroically overcame his battles with lust and pornography and lived in really radical freedom for the last 30 years of his life before he went home to be with the Lord recently. In that time, he became really one of the top experts in the world in helping men overcome their addiction. I believe that the, the definition of an addiction, even if you look at it as a neurochemical phenomenon, is very similar to a definition of original sin. And basically, to me, original sin is I don't trust God and I, I can't depend on Him to care for my needs. I have to control my own life. So as I seek to control my own life, it separates me more and more from a dependent and trusting relationship on God. That's why I think pride is an incredibly powerful factor in not being able to recover from any addiction. Because an addict thinks, I'll stop tomorrow, or I can handle this on my own, or if you knew this about me, you wouldn't like me. So there's everything about addiction that is about trying to control something. And that's original sin to me. It's like I'm trying to control my own life and not giving it up to God. See, here's where we land on trusting God and His promises. Honest confession about your sin and addiction is really the beginning of saying, God, I trust you. I trust you with my marriage. I trust you with my reputation. And I finally realize I'm not in control. It's in your hands. In fact, the 12 steps, the first step is we admitted we were powerless over our sin and that our lives had become unmanageable. The first big concept of uh, the 12 step movement is powerlessness and the ability to admit that finally. Here's more about why getting to that point, understanding your powerlessness, matters. This is Debbie Laser again. So information about what these secrets have been over the years is incredibly important to, to lay a groundwork, or as we say, a foundation for beginning to heal. And we do that through a process we call full disclosure. When she says we, she's referring to the group of therapists and counselors at Faithful and True, the ministry she and her husband Mark founded to help couples who are battling lust and pornography. They offer intensives, and we've been to one of those ourselves. We'll add a link in the show notes. We have a very specific process here of helping lead a couple through offering information from the addict to a spouse so that she is not led to have to ask questions to find out what she needs to know. I find that a lot of times there are husbands who have led secret lives and who say, you know, you can ask me anything, and I think it's very heartfelt, and they really mm -hmm. mean it, that you can ask me anything you want, and, and I will be truthful with you. And while I love that, that um way of approaching that and that openness, it still is not the most helpful way for a wife to live in truth. And so we lead a couple through a process of him offering information. It can be a very difficult and hard time. It can be, it can feel very hurtful to her. But what my belief is that it's way more harmful to allow someone to live without the truth. Right. Um, living without the truth means you consistently don't are not able to match up your external reality with your internal reality. I think we all have hunches mm -hmm. and red flags and intuitive senses about things we see and smell and hear and so forth that if we're not being told the truth, they don't match up. And that's a very crazy-making place. So mm -hmm. I encourage men who are here getting help with you that one of the greatest gifts they can give to their spouse mm -hmm. is um, full disclosure by offering information. Bob gave me the gift of disclosure sitting here in our red leather chairs. And Bob, you sat here and said to me, I cannot find my way back to God without breaking your heart. I was wondering recently why, and a lot of people, have, as I've been doing interviews on the book, have been asking why was it essential for you to confess to me that day? What led you to do it? 
Well, I had been wanting to do it for a long time, but I wanted to do it at the time that I felt like would hurt you the least, which was just a no-win situation. But I also saw some health effects that I felt were spiritual in you. That I was getting sick a lot. Yeah. And I really, it's weird, but I really could time them with certain things that I was doing. And that was when it kind of got like, this has to be taken care of. Do you think that was spiritual? Absolutely. I think it's very weird, Hmm. but it did push me to tell you everything. And that's probably God's and the Holy Spirit's way of doing it Hmm. is to maybe hurt someone I love, which is terrible, really. Hmm. Um, So I sat you down that day, told you everything I could think of, although it's usually layered. It's Mm. usually too painful to tell everything in in one fell swoop, which is why you have to be careful of what we call full disclosure and how it works. Yeah, because that wasn't the end of your confession. There were more details that would come out in the weeks to come. Yeah, and that was a mistake I made. So confessing in waves is called staggered disclosure and can be very hurtful. It's not good to do that because incomplete information feels even more like lies, even if if you're trying to be honest. Mm -hmm. And it can be very damaging in a relationship because it can traumatize your wife all over again. So staggered disclosure is a a, a really tough thing. Don't do it. But if you do, I mean, God's grace will still be there for you, obviously, but it certainly was for us. Mm -hmm. So confession is a really big part of the redemption process, but it's also a complicated part. And there are lots of different opinions about how it should be accomplished. So let's check in again with Pete Kuyper. You might remember him. He's our marriage counselor from Crossroads Counseling of the Rockies. So when we sat in these red chairs and revisited our own healing with him, Dana asked him this. If erasing shame requires intimacy, how important is full disclosure? Yeah, that's... That's a tough one too, because um, you know a lot of lot of uh, people who deal with you know affairs and so on and and pornography and and sexual addiction stuff um, would say it's it's unhealthy to disclose until you have some some recovery under belt because you're going to just keep re-injuring and reoffending your partner. Um, with just disclosing one thing after another. Pete, if I had to describe him as lanky, he's in his 70s and has white hair and blue eyes that kind of make you want to be seen. And that's a good thing because... It, it is important to to not be hiding and only presenting the best parts of yourself. To me, it's it's really important to to know before God that all of my parts the most shameful parts as well as the the best parts of me, all of my parts are welcome to his table um, as welcome guests. Not just the best of me, but all of me is is welcome before God and, and invited and loved. And that's when I have the courage to to start to be real with, with myself and then be real with my partner about what I've done and, and disclosing those things but the commitment that we have to each other of i i'm going to love all of you and i'm not just going to expect you to show me the best parts and keep the other parts hidden Mm -hmm. because the parts we keep hidden are the wounded parts and if we don't if we don't address those wounds the wounds never heal and so the lies get stronger the false beliefs get stronger and and become strongholds Let me jump in here and talk about escalation and say that it's a lie you tell yourself that it won't escalate and that this is all I'm going to do and it'll stop here and I have this under control and I'm acting out in a way that has nothing really to do with Dana. It's just me and it doesn't affect my love for her. Uh, She shouldn't really feel bad about it. I mean, it's all kind of lies you tell yourself in your mind. 
as it escalates. Mm -hmm. And it escalates very slowly, but there is a 100% chance it will escalate. Mm. And that's actually my concern for the culture today of young people getting into pornography early is that there's nowhere to go but escalation. And when you start at eight instead of 18, and the things that are on the web now are so much worse than I can Transgressive, ever Transgressive, violent, oh my gosh. horrible. It's not Playboy. I mean, it's nothing mm -mm. like that. Yeah. You know what? Let's take a few minutes here, Bob. I, I wonder if you could walk us through the stages of pornography addiction, the escalation. Um, you can call it a stronghold if you're uncomfortable with the word addiction. But just listen. We want to help you know where you are. Do you just have a casual problem in your marriage? Are you in the throes of escalating or are you already into a full-blown addiction? Take inventory as Bob goes through these stages and ask yourself, where am I in the progression? Well, the first step is early exposure. And it's, it's often the result of just being curious. You're drawn in maybe as a child or a young man. And once that happens, the release of dopamine and other feel-good chemicals provide a lot of comfort and excitement, and it just lures you into trying it again and again and again. Mm. And that's when the second stage, addiction, develops as curiosity turns to a physiological dependency. Porn is needed to maintain feel-good chemicals and emotional stability. And you're going to know when you're here because you'll likely start to notice a cycle of use, a pattern. That's your brain demanding the medication it needs to stay happy. And that's a really big thing is that most guys have a cycle <laughs> and um, – when I was a teenager, it was like once a month. Mm -hmm. And I would confess, and I could go 30 days. It was very cyclical. And it was that way throughout my almost entire life that it would be very cyclical. And then it would start to get more frequent and escalate. Mm -hmm. And that's when I would take some measure to stop it. Yeah. So if you're in a cycle, which we're going to talk about a lot in the next episode, you are in addiction. So the next phase is desensitization. And at this point, normal becomes boring, and it no longer provides the same pleasure or excitement. You need different instead of just more. And sex in your own marriage bed may be more transactional rather than fulfilling and intimate. Look, I want to stop here and say you're in a real dangerous place when you get to this stage. Even the word desensitization you know, it it kind of shows to me, look, you don't know where you're going. You've lost perspective. And at that point, you've pretty much totally lost perspective or are losing perspective of what porn use or the escalation, whatever acting out you're doing is actually impacting on you, your wife, and your family. Yeah. I get, I'm getting letters all the time from women who are in this place where their husband doesn't understand it, he doesn't understand he needs help, and they're bleeding, they're hurting, and they can see that he is too, but he's like, no, I'm going to be fine. They're desensitized, and um, this is a wake-up call, if that's you. The next stage is full escalation, where a man, and let me just pause and say, you know what, wives, it's we aren't immune to pornography. Women struggle too. And at this full escalation, a man or a woman seeks novel ways to get that dopamine fix, maybe turning to chat rooms or sexting or inappropriate social media conversations or full-on cyber sex. Sex in the marriage bed usually becomes less frequent at this stage. And the final stage is obviously acting out sexually. It could include meeting people in hotels, hiring prostitutes, or having affairs or a whole bunch of other stuff. And so the question is, where are you in the cycle? Are, are you progressing? Do you think you can control it? No matter where you are, honest confession is the beginning of your healing and hers. And, and let me repeat this one more time. If you do not do what you need to do to heal, you will escalate. That's just how it works, period. Having said that, let's get back to our conversation with Pete. How does how do we do disclosure in a way that's safe and effective? That's a question that I that I'm I'm not even sure I have a good handle on yet. 
I'm, it's just I'm, hard. Yeah, it is really difficult. And I don't know that it, that there's a formula. Um, I think Should it be done between just the husband and wife? Should there be someone else there? I think that depends on the couple and, and the situation. And I think it's it's really personal. And I, I don't know that I have a, a, that it should always be done a certain way. It's well, oftentimes helpful to have a, um, a trusted person that, that can, can be there with you so that, that they can help to be a cushion and, and a, um, a support to the person who's hearing this disclosure. Another question on that line, which is a hard question, is how much detail, a lot of times a person will pump for details, who, what, when, where, why, how much, how often, what time, what day? Yeah, I find that that too much detail only feeds the monster. It just makes you it makes things worse because it only raises more questions and, and and it seems to be unending at that point. And then the healing tends to be the mindset about healing tends to be the more I know, the more I'll be able to forgive or finally get some healing and i don't think it's dependent on how many details are shared it's it's really more about the heart attitudes that you're approaching it with and i think humility is probably the greatest tool that's going to help with disclosure because if both people are coming with a heart of humility um, that's that's when you're listening with a, a caring heart that understands we're all broken, we're all sinners before God. We have, I'm, I'm in no better or worse shape than, than my spouse before God. We're on equal playing field, really. No matter what I've done wrong, no matter what my partner has done wrong, we're all equal before God. And if we have that humble heart, and in addressing those things with each other, then, then we're going to be able to hear it and have empathy in terms of caring about, wow, you did all these things out of a place of, of brokenness that um, must have been a very lonely place because really nobody knew about it. Pete, the advantage I've had in my life and our marriage is I've always been the one to kind of confess first they really haven't been caught that adds a lot of there's a little bit of trust that remains there because the person told you before that you were caught do you see some characteristics of the difference between a guy that get let's say gets caught and he starts to disclose things and he's crying and people take crying to be repentance well that's that's where I I I really emphasize the importance of repentance not just being about changed behavior because so many Christians have been taught <clears throat> I'm going to turn from this behavior to a healthy behavior and so I'm repenting of my sin. Ah that's really the result of repentance it's not repentance. Repentance to me is going to the bottom of my iceberg and recognizing where that behavior came from, what I was believing to be true. And when I am seeing just how wrong I am at the bottom of my iceberg, that's when I, I start thinking differently, start feeling differently. And, and I truly do have that the repentance that, turn, that changes my behavior because I don't want to live that way. I don't want to do that to myself or to my partner. So to me, it's, the word repentance literally means to perceive afterwards or to reconsider. And I think you're reconsidering on the basis of what, what was driving that behavior that was totally off base. Yeah. So, it's like ripping dandelions up by the roots rather than cutting them off at the surface. Yeah. Yep. Going for the roots. Then you don't have to deal with the yellow. Yeah. Bob doesn't like dandelions. <laughs> And we all want true green to just come and pull up and kill those weeds without our hard work. Yeah. Repentance is something I'm writing about for the men right now. And I agree with Pete. Behavior change is not true repentance. Crying is not a sign of repentance. 
You go back to Matthew 3, where John the Baptist confronted the Pharisees who, you know, were stressing more outward behavior and observances with little evidence of true repentance. And you know the passage. It's where he takes a a verbal flamethrower to them and calls them a brood of vipers, which, you know, we'd use snakes today. We'd use, like, (laughs) pile of snakes or... I like that. I I would love John the Baptist. I think I would love to be around him. Not his diet, but I'd love to be around him. (laughs) I think we'd be good friends. And... When John says, bear fruit in keeping repentance, the word fruit here in that verse is plural. There's more than one result of true repentance. Behavior change is one thing that proves genuine repentance. But I'm going to give you a few characteristics of what is part of that behavior change, some ways to judge how that behavior has actually changed. I actually have a list of these in my Bible that I've been working on for a while. Um, I share it with other men as they enter this phase, and I share it with wives at some point, too, to to help them have some reference point for how their husband is doing. I'll list them out here. The first one is owning your whole story. So we have an inner circle of people that we're telling the story to, and when we first tell the story, there's kind of blanks in it, like, well... I didn't always tell Dana the truth. As you go on and become more repentant, you say, I lied to Dana. And there's certain tells in the story that will show you the kind of the repentance stage they're in when they say, I did this and it was nobody else's fault, which takes me to my next one, which is not blame shifting. Um, Not saying, well, you know, I had the travel for my job, and so I was really put in a bad situation. Uh, or I hear from a lot of wives that their husbands say, it's your fault because we don't have enough sex or the right kind of sex or good sex. Uh, no. Exactly. <laughs> my wife works too much or she's not attentive, and so I had to go elsewhere, and it just created a lot of temptation for me. Zero, that's blame shifting totally. And you will hear it until someone is fully repentant. Mm. You'll hear it. It won't be obvious because in their mind, they will be saying they're sorry, they're crying, whatever. Mm -hmm. But it's little stuff like this that um, you can hear. And that's one of the reasons you ask them to tell their story. The third thing is readily embracing boundaries that that inner circle suggests, including your wife. Yeah, which we're going to devote the whole program next time to that. Yeah, not saying, well, she doesn't trust me, that's why I have these boundaries. It's kind of like, hey, this is how I can help her feel safe. This is how I can progress on my journey. And I don't take it as a lack of trust. I take it as consequences. Mm -hmm. I say that all the time. Not, well, they shouldn't think about that about me or she doesn't trust me, but this is consequences. And I will always feel some of those. And that's the way it goes. I did it. And that's the result. So when Dana asked me, when you ask me certain boundaries, when I'm really repentant, I say whatever I need to do there to make you feel safe. Mm. One of the things we did was like location shared on the phone. Yeah. Which feels sometimes like, oh my gosh, she's watching me every time. There's a whole app that does that now, Life360. I have lots of friends that use it um, just to like keep tabs on their family. And, you know, you could just give that as a gift to your wife, say, hey, Here's my Life360 connection, and you're always going to know where I am at all times. And what's really great is, like you say, when you suggest it. Yeah. The fourth thing is accepting discipline and not asking to be released from it. Understanding that the people around you, if you have a good support team, love you and are putting you through this process for your good. And again, Dana, it's really important that you have that support team that you trust because there's been times I have and there's been times I haven't. And that makes all the difference in the world. So just to see a person accepts his discipline that doesn't complain about it or kill the messenger because they did something a little bit wrong or they mm-hmm. said something. And they will do things wrong. Absolutely. But you they're say- people. They're human. And you say, you know what? They wouldn't have done that wrong if I hadn't hmm. sinned initially. I wouldn't have put them in that situation. So it is on me. That's a big thing you can see in somebody's repentance. Yeah. And the fifth thing is trusting the opinion of the people in your inner circle that you're healed and safe 
enough to return to the place you've been before. Yeah, maybe a position of authority or maybe letting up on some of those boundaries or even stopping therapies that have run their course and you've kind of completed a track, although you never really get out of the community and the accountability. I, one of the things that I see is women are writing to me from this book and saying, like, I don't feel like our healing journey's over. I'm still feeling so broken. And my husband's like, yeah, we're done. I'm not doing counseling. And I'm thinking, wow, that man hasn't gotten to repentance yet. Maybe you recall in that last episode how I worked with a college girl named Chloe, and together we learned that her repeated pattern of acting out was really rooted in a deeply held belief that she had to perform to be loved. But when we discovered that lie, ripped it up, and replaced it with God's truth, her behavior naturally changed. And that's what Pete's suggesting. Repentance really happens in our beliefs, not in our behaviors. Healthy, godly behaviors are then the outgrowth of what's happening in the depths of our hearts. This podcast is brought to you by Pure Freedom and Moody Publishers. Here's Bob Gresh. It turns out I was also struggling with a kind of I don't know, like performance to be loved and accepted. You know, I believed the lie that I needed to earn people's approval. And it was a real people-pleasing place to be, which is exhausting because I found myself campaigning, comparing, and competing. Those are three exhausting things, particularly when you're doing all of them. A lot of three C's in our episode That's today. True. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And uh, so pay particularly close attention to what I'm about to discuss with Pete. It's really important because most people struggling with any kind of sexual strongholds are really having a hard time understanding their worth. The main sentence I got from you is, what if who you are isn't up for a vote? Yeah. I've shared that hundreds of times. I think about that a lot. It's still the challenge I have. I find myself campaigning, comparing, or competing. And yeah. your words we've all been politicians since we were little kids because we right. we trying to please, trying to get people to like us and and give us a positive vote so that if we can collect enough votes, we'll finally be okay. Yeah, and I realized mm. it's counterintuitive, but the more I campaign, the less I, the less it's healthy for my relationships. Mm -hmm. seems like if I'd campaign harder, my relationships would be better, but well, you just get tired of campaigning. <laughs> yep. Cause you never get enough votes. Ever lose an election? I have. There's a lot of words I could say to describe what that feels like, but let me just say it's embarrassing. But when you're campaigning every day, as if you're in an election for your value as a human, um, it goes beyond that. You experience shame. And shame is the ultimate killer. Mm -hmm. It's the ultimate tool of Satan. So Pete told us a story that really helped us in our understanding of just how powerful shame can be. Well, I, when I was a kid, our family took a vacation to a dude ranch and we had lots of fun riding horses and doing lots of fun activities throughout the week. And on the outskirts of this large property was located an outhouse that was there just in case you needed a place to go. You had a place to go if you couldn't get back to the lodge in time. And uh, as far as I know, there's a very limited number of reasons why you move the location of an outhouse. And obviously the answer seems to be the number one reason must be it's full. And I said, it's the number two reason. <laughs> Maybe one and two. <laughs> and that was the reason why they had moved the location of this outhouse on this particular day. And the workers, the ranch hands, didn't have enough time that day to fill in the old hole. And uh, so my two sisters were taking a walk with their little friend on the outskirts of the property that evening without a flashlight. And as they walked, they sort of had a preview of the rapture because three were walking and two were left. Mm. 
their little friend had fallen in, kind of slid in. And when they pulled her out, they gave her a big hug to comfort her. No, they didn't. <laughs> not a chance because she was gross and disgusting and smelly and she didn't hang around to talk about it. She ran, not walked back to the lodge. And, and as she approached the lodge, she sort of had a sense of the power of Moses because wherever she went, she parted the people that <laughs> 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 got out of her way. And she literally got into the shower and showered over and over again. And even when other people said they couldn't smell her anymore, she could still smell herself. She couldn't get away from it, couldn't get away from the thought of it, the feeling of it, the memory of it, how disgusting and gross it was. And that's the feeling of shame. That's the reason I tell that gross story is, is a perfect illustration of what shame is like, because there's this fear of if anybody gets too close to finding out what I'm really like on the inside, they won't want anything to do with me. They'll be disgusted and repulsed. So that's the story of the outhouse and really illustrating shame. Wow. Yeah, it's, it sticks with you. Unless you tell someone. James 5.16 reads, Confess your sins one to another, and then you will be healed. Healed of the consequences of your sin and healed of your shame. When you get transparent, you begin to experience intimacy. Remember, that's the medicine you both need right now. Well, um, if you are experiencing true intimacy with another person, their message of, I love you, not just because of, of how good you are or what you've done right, but I love you because I know who you are in Christ and that you are valuable and precious. You are God's poema Poema. That's a word we learned from Pete. It's the Greek word for workmanship as found in Ephesians 2.10. Let me read that for you. For we are his workmanship, or poema, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That uh, workmanship that Ephesians 2.10 talks about, um, the masterpiece, um, when, when you experience somebody loving you for who you are, that's when shame dissipates. So, so that word in Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, is poema, right? As you say, right. another thing I'll never forget, and that means we're his poem, his art. What yes. a powerful. It's a powerful. Yeah. yeah. And if we start to believe that not only are we masterpieces, but we, every believer, every person you meet is actually God's workmanship. And some people, if they've accepted Christ, they get to they get to experience that. If they're not a believer, they're never going to enter into it, even though it's true, because they need to do it through Jesus Christ. It needs to be in union with God. And uh, but that that masterpiece, believing that we are that masterpiece, is a is a game changer for so many people because it is the truth about us. It is, it's God's truth about us. And that's, therefore, we don't have to worry about the votes of other people. It's actually a, a good litmus test for me because when I say that verse, it's easy for me to say it about other people, but it's hard for me to say about, about myself. Yeah. Uh, and I, I recognize that I have to work on some things more and believe who God says I am, because it doesn't come naturally for me to think that. That's very true. That's true for so many people that what I know to be true for, for others, I just, I just see myself as somehow exempt from that. And that's really at crossroads, what we call strongholds, a false belief that's so strong that I, that it doesn't, it doesn't seem false. And, and so even the truth of God that then doesn't impact me, doesn't change me because I'm still saying to myself, my own truth about myself is more true than God's truth about me. How do we change that? That's, that's where we're asking God to, to help us to break and demolish those strongholds. And that's the passage in 2 Corinthians it's chapter 10, I think. That passage says the weapons of our warf warfare against strongholds 
are not ours, but mighty through God to the tearing down of our strongholds. Then it goes on to say, casting out every false imagination, which I would take to be false beliefs, false ways of thinking and understanding lies we bought into, challenging those, but every proud thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. So I'm, again, a stronghold is believing that my, my belief about myself is stronger than God's truth about me. And so asking God to, to break those strongholds and being willing to give those things over to God and, and give up the control of those things. So I don't know if you remember this, but I was sitting in the parking lot of my office when um, I called you many, many months, maybe two years into our work with you. And we had been to Crossroads for, I don't know, two, two intensives and maybe some online care follow-up work. And I was sleeping in the guest bedroom because I was still really ticked off. Mm -hmm. And you brought up the D word, which is a bad word in our house. We don't say the D word. We've never used the divorce word as a weapon against one another. Mm -hmm. And we've never, it's never been an option for either of us. We always had enough hope in Jesus, even when we didn't have any hope in each other mm -hmm. that we never used it. But I don't know if you remember this, you accused me of being divorced in my heart. Hmm. I do remember that. <laughs> Tell me what you remember. <laughs> well, it 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 had more to do with an attitude than than an actual divorce proceeding, because if you if you have put up your walls and and keep yourself isolated behind your walls, there's not much difference between that and divorce because it's living in self-protection. And, and when your fears of being rejected and wounded some more and, and all, the, all the pain of, of relationship, when those fears become more important than relationship, that's when you're in trouble because you, you then no longer are open to healing, reconciliation, um, working, excuse me, working through issues. So that's something I really emphasize a lot too in counseling is don't let fears become more important than relationship because that will put you in self-protection mm -hmm. and self-protection will never result in intimacy. You said it that day as gently as you just said that sentence, but it felt like you whacked me across the head with a baseball bat. It was a wake up call because yeah. I was really standing in a lot of self-righteousness, I think. You're nodding your head much too enthusiastically. <laughs> That's that is such a common thing because it, that that goes to that that attitude of pride of superiority. I have been doing all the right things. I have been so patient. I have, and you, you start to pat yourself on the back with all the ways that you have been so good, and it it. Um, that is an attitude of pride that will keep the relationship from ever healing. Yeah, I've had oodles of it. Bob was just on the other end he, where he just kept on beating himself up with his guilt and shame and inferiority that I don't deserve. And so I, I'm going to prove to you I don't deserve. And eventually, maybe you'll give up on me and prove that I'm right, that I'm that bad. And, and both are very self-absorbed and, and are not ever going to promote healing. Right. They're both opposite ends of the spectrum of pride. They're yes. both self-focused. One is just a self-loathing and one is a self-exalting. Exactly. And that's why humility is such a key to this whole thing. Yeah. Well, that's this episode of the Happily Even After limited series podcast with Bob and Dana Gresh. Be sure to check out the show notes at danagresh.com. If you don't already have a copy of Happily Even After, Let God Redeem Your Marriage, get one anywhere you like to buy books. Episodes one through seven of this podcast support key chapters in that book. They contain conversation prompts to explore the seven beliefs every marriage needs to experience God's redemption. Hopefully you've read chapter 10 titled, Truth Number Two, Honest Confession is the Beginning of Healing. 
At the end of that chapter are some simple conversation prompts to exercise your ability to be in tune to your emotions and to grow in intimacy together as a couple. So let me be clear. We're not, we're not advocating for you to disclose everything in this conversation. That's not what we're doing. Before you do that, it's very helpful to be sure you're both ready. So we encourage you to have someone who has a clinical understanding and experience in biblical care on hand for that, in that conversation. But we do want to encourage you to take some steps today towards being vulnerable with each other. It's a big step, but it's the next step to healing. The Happily Even After podcast is written by Bob and Dana Gresh. Original music and production by Blake Bratton. And thanks to Moody Publishers for underwriting this episode. Here's what's up next time. Tippy, one of the things that was really hard that you helped me understand um, is detachment and boundaries. Because when I when I started to feel, I, I didn't know what to call it. I just said, I feel a distance from Bob, but it's not like I'm walking away from him. I don't know what to call this and I'm terrified. And you said, that's detachment. It can be a scary thing, but it can also be a very holy thing. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, it's very important, especially for women in a marriage, because we take things so personally and we don't understand a lot of things about men and whatnot. We have to be able to look at our husbands and love them no matter what, but not take it on. We Women have a tendency to believe that everything bad that happens is their fault in some way. A Satan is talking to women all the time. He talked to me until I was 50 years old. And I was, I just had presented some, shared some thoughts uh, with some women in, um, at, at Green Tree. And I, the Lord told me I needed to tell them that I was a recovering alcoholic and I was terrified. And my mother was coming and I hadn't told her. So I had to go tell her first. And every time I tell that, I'm freer and freer and freer. So loud now, Satan can't say anything to me. He used to say, oh, you're this and you're that. And I said, oh, shut up. Everybody knows that. <laughs> That's an example of holy detachment. I don't listen to that voice.